Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. about a little luck. Uh, welcome everyone to Night Lights Part 2. Uh, don't forget about the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship webinar this weekend. Um, hey, you know, the presidential debate was scheduled to detract from our guests' information about government UFO cover-ups. It was playing that way. Okay, last week was a really fun show. It's nice working with hosts from other networks and your know, results in new perspectives. Uh, you know, Craig Ansel from the Three Beards podcast has been captivated by the Shakespeare authorship controversy, controversy and jumped at the chance of uh, you know, get, getting into a more detailed discussion with Catherine. Uh, and it's a small community of radio hosts, and it's you know, a great feeling uh, to have a productive collaboration. It's like when uh, George Harrison, Harrison brought in Eric Clapton to work on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, or Jeff Beck brings in Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones as a Yardbirds reunion, and they had Keith, uh, Keith, Keith Moon and uh, the Stones' Nicky Hopkins for Beck's Bolero, which... Uh, was an early heavy metal nucleus of Led Zeppelin as well as being a classic rock instrumental. So something different and expected emerged. You know, those uh, combining of net networks can present positive results. I've seen some uh, networks where, you know, just, they just prefer to be homogenous and only presenting the same points of view from the same people. And it really doesn't attract new listeners. And I, I just really, I want to thank uh, Craig and Catherine uh, for keeping last week's show uh, moving forward. Great working with them. Okay. Um, 
tonight's show is something like a family reunion. Our guest, Kathleen Marden, is one of the upper echelon UFO researchers. Uh, Kathleen's frequent collaborator, Stanton Friedman, was a regular on Barbara's Patrick's uh, show, and you know the Betty and Barney Hill experience happened about 80 miles from America's Stonehenge, and later on, and Dennis's mom and Betty were friends, and Dennis met her a few times. Uh, Kathleen's been to America's Stonehenge. <laughs> I, I met Kathleen at the 2013 Pittsburgh MUFON conference, and I purchased her the alien abduction files, which had just come out. And a few, few, a few weeks later, she was on uh, a show I was uh, helping out with, and and that was the first uh, uh, show I did. A um, you know, took the lead at, in doing a book review. Uh, since Kathleen is returning as a guest, maybe it wasn't all that bad. Um, when I approached her about it, at least she didn't say, I remember you. There's no way I'm ever going to be a guest with you again. But a- anyhow, we have uh, all kinds of connections weaved together for this show. And there is our another one of our regular uh, nightlight guests, my older brother, Reverend Michael Carter, is friends with her too so all all of us have some kind of connection to uh, ancient aliens as well so anyhow uh, Kathleen how are you I'm doing well thank you how are you good oh fine I'm glad you're here I've been looking forward to this show for uh, a a long time and really appreciate you uh, being a guest with us tonight. Um, I think we're probably going to be focusing mainly on uh, fact fiction and flying saucers. Uh, your the alien abduction files, and you know some more books. You know, I think we're going to tie together. So um, I think we have. A whole bunch of material to get through, and I, I'm really amazed with the work that you and your variety of co-authors have uh, published. Well, thank you. Yeah, and let's see it, it, the premise of fact fiction and flying saucers is examining the concerted effort to debunk ufology and mainly by the uh, government agencies early on in the book and you, you know you also bring it up in alien abduction files uh some people who intend to further ufology also uh discredit it and you know, I've dealt with a few people who have these like thirty minute long one sentence stories that start off when you know this like quasi dream state and then the bright lights appear and then the aliens appeared beside the bed and then this and then that and and 
it, the conclusion is uh, about the experiencer's relationship with God. Uh, I'm not doubting that something unusual happened. It's it just the presentation becomes so discombobulated. Uh, it, it just doesn't sound believable. And, you know, the person could be influenced by uh, ideas presented in, you know, just say close encounters of the third kind. Um, I encounter that, too, with you know, some of the alter, alternative history researchers that who, who are convinced that uh, a couple bumps on some rock slabs or remnants of statues from Atlantis and this narrow, uh, steep valley in southern West Virginia. So you have to look at pareidolia, diluted thinking, poor research, and it's not consistent with what Plato wrote about the concentric rings in the ocean. Um, Kathleen, in your uh, fact fiction and flying saucers and the alien abduction files, um, you you do profile – uh, some of these people, and you know, they are setting the movement back backwards. Um, I was just glad to see a reputable author address some of these I- issues. What what are some of the profiles that y- you encountered, you know, during your research? Well, let me say that I've encountered just about any profile that you can think (laughs) of uh, over the past 30 years of researching and investigating ET contact, contact with non-human intelligence. And uh, I've come to realize uh, through the social science studies that there and psychological studies that there are alternative uh, explanations for this, for some of these things, such as sleep paralysis, but it is up uh-huh. to the individual to determine whether or not they are having sleep paralysis. Uh, and I provide the uh, information that they need in order to make this determination. And even on my website, I have uh, an article that people can go to to read about sleep paralysis. I can also tell you that on um, a study, this is a major study of 516 experiencers that uh, the Mutual UFO Network's uh, comprehensive study did, we discovered that uh, a vast majority of individuals who believe they've had contact experiences uh, have actually had sleep paralysis, all of those symptoms. Mm-hmm. But then uh, we asked, uh, were you awake and moving when these non-human entities came into your environment? And then were you paralyzed? And what we found out was that only 36% of the 516 experiencers uh, had had that. But among our phase two abductee group, 60% had had 
waking, conscious observation of non-human entities that came into their environment. So we've worked very, very hard in order to Mm -hmm. separate uh, different types of experiences out. We found that a lot of people are having plain paranormal contact and Mm -hmm. are not having alien abduction or ET contact. We have uh, determined that there is a difference. Uh, Those Mm -hmm. who, uh, many, many people have entities that appear just appear in their environment. Some of these entities are highly positive, and a lot of these, the people who uh, are having medical problems, uh, people who, for example, there's one that I worked with who is quadriplegic. And after the accident, this individual had this angelic figure who would come into his environment and give him strength to go on. Um, wow. Then on the other side of this, we have uh, highly negative non-human entities who sometimes mimic uh, what we think of as being extraterrestrial beings, and um, but their modus operandi is very different. They taunt people. They put uh, negative thoughts into people's minds. They might uh, encourage them to commit suicide or to do something bad. Uh, so we have, there's that part of it as well. And in my mm-hmm. latest book that I don't think we're going to talk about tonight, but it's called Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted, I've devoted an entire chapter to trying to make these negative interdimensionals Stop coming into the the human's environment. Um, the other category we have of, is those individuals who are actually having contact with extraterrestrial beings. Now, the way we can differentiate this is that these extraterrestrial beings uh, have uh, act as scientists. Uh, they take people to their environment uh, for a specific purpose or purposes. One is for education. Uh, Another one is to check their bodies through a medical examination. Um, Of course, we all hear that uh, the objective of of all of this is uh, to create hybrids, some people think, to supplant humans. But in our MUFON study, a very small percentage uh, of the 516 people who participated stated that they were part of this hybrid program. So uh, there are other reasons, too. But I think that the negative, uh, the frightening, has overplayed uh, because that is what attracts media attention, how horrific, yeah. how frightening this is. And... Uh, part of the uh, objective in writing extraterrestrial contact is to teach people how to determine uh, what they're having contact with. I have devoted an entire chapter to that, uh, another chapter to coping strategies, what to do. And if it is an extraterrestrial that 
or or extraterrestrials that you uh, are having a relationship with, then what can you do in order to stand on more equal ground with them so that information can be exchanged? And that's working for a lot of people. So I think those are very important things. Okay. I'm just glad you have uh, you you're welcome to come back and you know we'll uh c- cover your new book as well i i i'm just glad you, you spend or uh, d- devote so much time to uh, m- making these uh, differentiations uh, in in experiences and uh I'm just scientific research for 30 years yeah. full time. Mhm. Yeah. I and I I I was um just glad to see what you read what you wrote about it. It, it and so we have some of those uh issues that you just presented and Fact fiction and flying saucers also uh, uh, gets into some of the early uh, panel, you know, government panel discussions that lead up to you know the more formal um, government efforts to debunk people. Um, maybe we could start with some of these, uh, you know, uh, the Swedish uh, sightings that were ha- uh, being observed in the late 1940s, and that's what you know, caused America to start uh, doing so- some of their uh, panel uh, investigations. Yes, absolutely. Well, there was a flying yeah. disc that hovered over a military base in Germany uh, for an entire 30 minutes, and that attracted a lot of attention. Then we had the the rockets that uh, were uh, allegedly uh, shot from Russia toward uh, Sweden, but then... uh, it was discovered that uh, the United States military was taking this very seriously, and um, there were uh, prominent, very credible people who were observing flying discs. Uh, There was one case of a prominent businessman on his way to work who observed a landed flying disc with small entities outside that disc, uh, so that was drawing a credible uh, attention from the U.S. military. And these uh-huh. UFOs or flying disks were being observed by people around the world, not just in the United States. And the, uh-huh. uh, the Army Air Force uh, started their study, and in September of 1947, the Army Air Corps became uh, separated from the Army and became the Air Force. 
And uh, Project Sign was the first study. It was uh, kind of a comprehensive study of the reports that they had received from uh, members of the military, military pilots, uh, military officers, and enlisted people, uh, people who uh, they believed had credibility. And there was a scientific team that actually studied these sightings. And uh, in the end, um, there was a status report that was written that uh, these craft were metallic. They were elliptical-shaped. They had uh, a dome on the top. They were flat on the bottom. Uh, Their flight characteristics were different from what we had observed previously. Uh, They uh, could uh, take off very, very quickly and could stop very quickly. They could hover in the air. And uh, so this was very perplexing. And, of course, our military's great concern was that maybe one of our enemies had developed uh, these craft. And so uh, that was something that had to be watched. But in the end, they were not able to find any other country on this planet who had developed that that technology. Um Project Sign's uh, report was not well received by certain members of the military uh, who did not want to believe that this could be possible. So the next project was Project Grudge, and the name will give you an indication of what happened. Instead of having uh, a a very highly qualified team, Uh, they ended up with only two lower-level military people, uh, officers, who took all of Project Sign's reports and used scientists and meteorologists uh, and and just assigned prosaic explanations to the well-investigated cases that they couldn't explain. Uh, That ended in 1951, and Project Blue Book emerged. And the uh-huh. first director of Project Blue Book was Edward Ruppelt. And under him, there was a new effort uh, to look at this in a more scientific manner and to categorize these uh, UFO sightings and, and landing reports into prosaic categories, such as balloons, uh, uh, meteorological phenomena, astronomical phenomena, hoaxes, and so on and so forth, and balloons. And in the end, they had an unknown category. That was separate from uh, not enough in, insufficient information. Um, in the unknown category, they could not uh, categorize it as anything that we know of. And there were uh, 26.97% of those cases, and it was more than 1,500 cases that they looked at, that were true unknowns. Um, This drew interest from the CIA. And uh, not, not only that, but also the UFOs, 
that appeared over Washington, D.C. in 1952. And uh, Air Force jets were scrambled to chase these UFOs. They were picked up on radar. Uh, the experienced radar operators stated that uh, there had been uh, temperature inversions all summer long that would cause spurious blips on the radar screen. But these experienced radar operators stated that also there were unidentified flying craft that showed up on their radar screen. And so mm -hmm. that prompted the largest press conference that had happened since the end of World War II, held at the Pentagon, and uh, Major General John Alexander Samford uh, was there as the spokesperson. There were others as well. And uh, he made the, the comment that they were not trying to discredit observers. Um, you know, he said that there were reports from credible observers of incredible things and that there's nothing else in the work that can do these things except phenomena. Now, I had a little bit of a problem with the word phenomena because phenomena can be anything in the sky. It can, it can be an, an orb. It can be a Foo Fighter. It doesn't have to be a structured craft. He also made the statement that these uh, objects had been observed dating back to bi biblical times, and uh, there was no indication to that date, that they had any intention of harming us. Well, the CIA was very, very interested at this time because so many reports were coming in, and uh, they acquired some uh, little, little over 100 reports from the Air Force. I think it was 123 reports from Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book did not know uh, what they were going to be used for, so they didn't send the best reports that they had, unfortunately. And the CIA decided to convene uh, a team of government scientists. There were six government scientists uh, headed by Dr. H.P. Robertson. All of them had top-secret uh, security clearances, and their job was to figure out how to handle this. They looked at some cases. And to give you an example of uh, how they handled this, there was a case in Tremonton, Utah uh, in 1952, July of 1952. It happened in the middle of the day. Uh, it uh, was video. And that was taken by Navy Warrant Officer uh, Delbert uh, Newhouse. And he was an aerial photographer um, for the Navy, and uh, he had over 2,000 hours of flying time. So uh, his wife saw these objects in the sky first. They were in fairly close, and it attracted her attention. She pointed them out to him, he was so interested that he stopped the car. He got out and he looked at them when they were close up, and he decided that he ought to pull out his, uh, 
camera equipment, which is nothing like modern camera equipment. It took a while to set it up. And by the time he had it all set up and began taking video, um, they had moved off into the distance. But in the end, uh, 1,600 frames were analyzed frame by frame at the mm-hmm. at the Air Force's lab at Wright Field and the Navy's lab in Maryland. And both said that they could not identify them as balloons, aircraft, atmospheric mirages, or birds in flight. And uh, the Air Force expended a thousand hours to this investigation and analysis. And what happened was that the scientists came back, and one of them said, well, I've seen birds flying off the coast of California who, that looked like this. I don't think we should accept the Air Force and Navy's analysis. Send it back for reevaluation. And, of course, they didn't want to have the same conclusion. So that was pretty much what the Robertson panel, uh, I believe, intended to do. So in the end, uh, the panel members stressed the opinion that UFOs should be viewed as phenomena, such as Foo Fighters, um, that uh, a debunking campaign should be undertaken to reduce the public's interest in flying saucers through television, motion pictures, and popular articles, that scientists were encouraged to debunk UFO reports through deductive reasoning, and what they wanted to do in these television shows and radio shows and motion pictures was to actually videotape credible people who had had credible sightings and then to make them look like fools uh, through simple scientific evaluations, which were disinformation, actually, not not true mm-hmm. information. But it was a psychological campaign to reduce the public's interest in UFOs. Uh, also, they decided that there should be surveillance of civilian UFO groups and their leaders by intelligence operatives. And this did take place, and I believe it's still taking place today. And we go from these early panels and, you know, just trying to you know, like you said, uh, make credible uh, witnesses uh, look foolish. To you know, we start uh, having these people who really uh, start smear campaigns against uh, experiencers, and that's when you start bringing in some of these. Uh, you know the history of uh, certain people who seem seem to be uh, pretty nefarious in UFO circles, and you know you start off with uh, looking at Dr. Donald Menzel. Yes, yes, uh, Donald Menzel initially just looked like a 
professor of uh, of physics um, mm-hmm. at, at Harvard University. Uh, he ran the observatory, so he was an astrophysicist. And uh, Stanton Friedman actually was very interested in Dr. Menzel because uh, he was reputedly a member of MJ-12, the committee that the U.S. government set up uh, after the Roswell crash, top secret committee. And uh, But Stanton couldn't understand why Dr. Menzel was writing books that were dismissing UFOs as all sorts of natural phenomena and misinterpretations by observers. And so Stanton ended up going to Harvard to the library, um, the archival collection of Dr. Menzel. He had to get permission from Dr. Menzel's uh, wife and from the university to do this research. He went there and uh, started going through the files, and he found a letter written from, by Donald Menzel to John F. Kennedy. And the letter said, I can tell you more when we are properly cleared to one another. And Stanton went, what? What do you mean properly cleared to one another? Uh, This is supposed to be just a professor of astrophysics at Harvard. And so Stanton started to dig deeper. And Dr. Menzel had left uh, an unpublished autobiography. In that autobiography, Stanton read that he had a longer association with naval intelligence than almost anyone else and that he was a member of the National Security Agency. So that told Stanton a lot about who Dr. Menzel really was. And as we probed deeper and deeper, into his job, it appears that he was working as a paid disinformant for the U.S. government uh, in order to debunk UFOs and debunk them despite uh, Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14 uh, that was the largest scientific study ever done by, by the Air Technical Intelligence Center at the Battelle Memorial Institute, 3,201 UFO sighting cases. And like the work that uh, Edward Ruppelt had carried out earlier, they were divided into various categories, balloon, astronomical, aircraft, miscellaneous, psychological, insufficient information, and unknowns. And of the 3,201 cases, 21.5% were true unknowns. And a chi-square analysis was done as well, which is very rarely done, but they were really getting into a quality evaluation of these cases. And the higher the quality of the sighting, the more likely it was to be a true unknown. So Menzel was in the business of covering all of this up and trying to convince the American public that uh, people were misinterpreting information, that it was a perceptual problem, that it was public hysteria, 
the people who wanted to see something and saw it because they were fantasy prone. Uh, it goes on and on. But uh, the facts are the facts, and the facts are in the government files, and those files are in fact fiction and flying saucers. Stanton and I went to uh, archival collections, physical archival collections, to acquire a lot of our information. And I'm very proud of that. We, it cost us a lot of money to go, but I think that it's important to tell the truth. If you're going to write a history book, it had better be accurate history. And as people read this book, they will see that there are sections of it that are basically your and Stanton's uh, autobiographies. Yes. And there are uh, um, I just lost the page number um, where in in 1968 uh, Stanton was a presenter at the UFO Symposium. So, uh, can can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, you know, just keep that on in mind. You, know, you just said you were at all these archives, and you know, Stan it, it was just part of this historical event. Yes, he was. I mean, he he was born in 1934, so he had. Uh, he was a, a mature man back in 1968, had been working for quite some time as a, a nuclear physicist, but had uh, an interest in UFOs and, and had a little UFO study group that uh, did not criticize people who made reports to them. And uh, Stanton uh, wrote a paper uh, for uh, congressional testimony, and um, so he was one of the individuals who did that. Um, and you know, Donald Menzel was always attempting to dismiss Stanton. Stanton was presenting the facts. Donald Menzel was presenting, uh, as I said before, uh, anything that he could pull out of his, the top of his head. And, and this dates back all the way to before that January 1953 uh, Robertson panel. The summer before that, Donald Menzel went to the Pentagon, and uh, he talked to uh, military officers there. He went in and he said, I've done a few simple experiments, and I'm writing two articles for magazines, and I want you to support me. Uh, I've, uh, I'm going to debunk UFOs as simply being uh, atmospheric phenomena. And the military officers at the Pentagon refused to go along with him. He was extraordinarily angry, but they said, you know, they had a serious interest at that time. Why should we have a dismissive attitude? Just write this off. Uh, according to your results on one simple experiment. Uh, and, and so he had a very long history 
of being dismissive. He did not, I have noticed, really investigate the reports. He came up short uh, time and time again uh, as he attempted to debunk some of these reports because he didn't have the facts in hand. And so uh, although he was outspoken as a government scientist, um, served on uh, these symposia that in, and conferences uh, where he uh, attempted to discredit UFO reports. Uh, now Stanton knew who he was early on, and uh, they did not get along together at all. And oh, uh, you and Stanton wrote that there are no references in his seven-page paper that he submitted yeah. to. Uh, but I, um, it's that's one of the uh, it's information like that that uh, makes uh, fact fiction and flying saucers uh, uh, such compelling reading. Is okay. We get a lot of these uh, stories that. Um, you know, one side, you know, the government side's presented, but you have someone like Stanton who was there. Yeah, it, and it, it, it makes for a much more uh, a balanced reading. You get both sides of the story from uh, someone like Stanton who is a credible researcher. Absolutely, and you can see by the references that the scientists who were truly interested in uh, this topic, uh, flying saucers, UFOs, and, and believed that it deserved scientific investigation, had references. They had done the mm-hmm. work. But there were other scientists, such as Donald Menzel, who, again, uh, wrote, a, wrote a paper, short paper, without any references. So Okay. And- it, it makes a big difference. Uh, you know, a lot, people can say anything. A lot of people make uh, incredible claims. But mm-hmm. uh, without evidence, without references, without footnotes, how can you believe what is stated? Right. And another I- Interesting point is page 62, you talk about uh, but Dr. Menzel thought that they must come from other solar systems. An excellent cover for that notion was a strange comment in his congressional testimony that the nearest source for alien visitors must be hundreds of light years away. And then you go, go into the other book that you and Stan co-authored about uh, Betty and Barney's, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, Betty's uh, star map. So uh, that seems to be a, another case in your book where your autobiographical material uh, refutes the you know official word. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and that's what American scientists have focused on. Um, they have, uh, for the most part, focused on a tiny 
area in space uh, maybe hundreds of light years away. Uh, but the fact is that there are 2,000 stars within 54 light years, and uh, we now believe that it's, I believe the last I heard it was believed that there were 1.5 planets uh, for each star. And if you go into the volume of space that the star map that Betty Hill was shown and then sketched and that a brilliant woman named Marjorie Fish worked on for years, uh, going to the university, copying down distance data, uh, evaluating the stars on uh, Betty's map, uh, the color, the um, the, all of the characteristics of the stars and the distance from our sun, uh, we find that uh, the volume of space where Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli are located, and those are the primary stars, the largest stars on the map that Betty was shown, that volume of space has loads of exoplanets. And uh, there was recently an update that was done by an astrophysicist. And uh, on YouTube, there is a link to that. Um, but uh, there's every reason to believe that there could be Earth-like planets in the Goldilocks zone around some of the stars in this volume of space. Amazing information. Okay, and you know, uh, we'll, we'll come back to uh, the star map and more about uh, Betty and Barney in uh, a little bit, but you know, the, there's another interesting thing uh, figure that you and Stanton uh, wrote about, and that was uh, Philip Class and his background in um, uh, UFO debunking is based on uh, newspaper articles. Um, yes. Uh, he, he was very attracted initially to um, – the the National Enquirer and that type of newspaper article, um, and uh, in order to kind of poke fun at all of this. Now Philip Class was not really involved in UFO investigation early on. He was a writer for Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine and one of the editors in magazine out of Washington D.C. And what I discovered in my research when I uh, acquired his FBI file is that Class uh, was in trouble with the FBI in, in the early to mid-1960s. And he was under suspicion as being an operative for uh, the Eastern European bloc. And the FBI was tra trailing him or tailing him he had a relationship with a young a Russian man at the Soviet embassy. They did everything together, 
and the FBI actually searched his apartment. Philip Klaus also, as a writer, had violated um, confidentiality uh, by revealing classified information twice and was under uh, suspicion uh, for that by the FBI. The only reason that he could not be prosecuted is because they would have to present classified information in court. When this kind of thing happened, Stanton and I discovered that sometimes these people were uh, given a choice of clearing themselves by working for the government. And I, we believe that that is what class decided to do. The first book he ever read on UFOs was written by John G. Fuller. It was written in uh, 1966, The Incident at Exeter, uh, about Uh a UFO sighting, close-up sighting, in Kensington, New Hampshire. And this uh, happened in 1965, if my memory is correct, and it was observed by um, a man who yes. had graduated from high school. He was just about to go into the service, and two police officers. And one of those police officers observed it at treetop level. It bathed the, the house in red light. And so class uh-huh. read that book, and he, had, he wrote in his book that, uh, he now knew that not all observers were kooks and cranks, as he had previously thought. And so, unfortunately, class uh, uh, went on for years, uh, giving false information, uh, questioning the credibility of these police officers. One of them had been in the Air Force and had worked on plane refueling, and he uh, stated unequivocally that it was not a refueling mission, as uh, class first tried to, and others tried to say, uh, class tried to say it was only uh, plasma on power lines, not taking into an account that it was observed at treetop level. And it was observed by more than the two police officers. It was observed by several people. <laughs> okay. So, it, and he also had a, let's uh, say, uh, you and Stanton also wrote, uh, Klaus waged a character assassination campaign against a third scientist, this book's co-author, Stanton T. Friedman. So, (laughs) Stanton uh, uh, rocked the boat a number of times. He did. You know, he he was so (laughs) strong, uh, so stable, uh, so uh, oh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the word. So confident in his own credentials and his own abilities that he uh, was able to argue back 
to fight back against all of these things. He uh, appeared on a radio show, uh, no, a television show in Canada. Uh, Shortly after he moved to Canada, he was still young, um, and the the television show host uh, interviewed Stanton, and actually in the interview he said, uh, have you ever been in a psychiatric hospital? Are you crazy? Uh, Unbelievable. And Stanton said, uh, no, I have a... Masters and uh, bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Chicago in physics. I worked in uh, the field of nuclear physics uh, in industry for 14 years, and I have his uh, Stanton's uh, curriculum vitae. And I can tell you that he held some pretty high-level positions in those uh, for those companies that he worked for. Uh, Stanton was a genius. He graduated first in his class from high school at age 16. And I was furious when uh, I listened to that video uh, that was made and, and those questions, the disrespect shown toward Stanton, but great respect shown toward a disinformant. Uh, who was also mm-hmm. on the same show. Now, Philip Class, uh, surreptitiously, Stanton never found out about this until late in his life, but Philip Class had written a letter to the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics at the National Research Council in Ottawa, Canada. And he said, I regret to inform you, uh, or to bring bad tidings uh, let me see. I, I need to enlarge this so that I can read it. Um, I have have that letter in front of me. Luckily, I just pulled it out um, regarding your UFO responsibilities. But trust that like the proverbial message, I st- uh, shall not be executed for doing so. He said, I have reason to believe that Canada will soon gain a noted ufologist, full-time UFO lecturer of the snake oil salesman variety, who will soon move to Canada to become its chief UFO guru. I'm not sure where he will take up residence, but I can assure you that you and your associates will be publicly accused of a UFO cover-up or cosmic cover-up as he is prone to say, that dwarfs the Watergate scandal. So this was written in 1980. And then he went on to say his uh, name is Stanton uh, Friedman. He's trained in nuclear physics. Um, He's the only nuclear physicist devoting full-time to UFOs. That's how he builds himself. And that he will cause great problems for the Canadian government. And as a result of this official-looking letter from Washington, D.C., of course, from Philip Class, they took it very seriously, and they took steps to expunge the names and addresses from their files so that Stanton and no other UFO researcher would be able to follow these reports. Uh, to talk to the witnesses. 
so unfortunately, this happened. Um, and unbelievable that he would call Stanton the ufologist of the snake oil salesman variety. He was certainly not that. Phil Class was, <laughs> but mm. not Stanton. No, I, I, I just I, when you read that passage, I jotted down you know, it's snake oil salesman. I, I, yeah, that's very insulting, Espe- it is. You know, especially for yeah people who, like you said, uh, their education is kind of you know uh, rooted in uh, the National Enquirer. <laughs> it, it, it's. It, you know, really sad that yeah, the 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 name calling uh, got that bad. Well, Philip Class uh, set up Doctor James McDonald, who Stanton had mm-hmm. great respect for, and Doctor McDonald uh, was uh, the had been the chairman of the physics department at the University of Arizona. Um, he became interested in the study of UFOs and, and then became co-chair so he could devote more time to this. Uh, he had Navy funding. He was a meteorological physicist. So he mm-hmm. uh, went to Australia, and he was doing meteorological physics, studying cloud formations in Australia, and at the same time, on his time off, not when he was working, on his free time, he did UFO investigations, talked to witnesses over there, acquired uh, scientific information. Philip Class then wrote to the Washington Post, to Jack Anderson, and he said that he had reason mm. to believe that Dr. McDonald was inappropriately using uh, naval research funds for UFO investigations. And the Navy actually did investigate Dr. McDonald and discovered that it was a completely above board, no problem whatsoever. But Philip Class said, if he acquires any more funding, then I am going to take this to Congress. And uh, the Navy didn't want to do that. So Dr. McDonald lost his funding from the Office of Naval Research, which was a terrible blow. uh, Class did one thing after another to him. He went to his lectures, and he always secretly recorded the statements that he made. But then... When I went to the American Philosophical Society, I found these letters that he wrote over and over again saying, well, uh, the recording didn't come out very well, so let me summarize for you what was stated. And when he did, he lied. Yes, he did this. He was was probably uh, the most prolific anti-UFO propagandist of the 20th century, and also the one with the lowest character level. Um, he, he, he harmed so many people. Travis Walton, Betty and Barney Hill, um, 
the two women in Texas uh, right. that I wrote about in the book uh, mm-hmm. uh, who were burned by a UFO, Betty Cash and uh, Vicki Landrum, and, and also uh, Lonnie Zamora, who in New Mexico had observed a landed craft, and uh, he was a police officer, highly esteemed in his community. And class ended up accusing Lonnie Zamora and the mayor of perpetrating a hoax to bring tourism into the town, which was uh, complete fiction. And there had been a scientific investigation that class completely ignored. What he did he is he entered speculation and false information into every case report to confuse the American public even to confuse ufologists, younger ufologists, who didn't know who he was or what his plan was. And that's why this book that we wrote, I think, is so important, because Mm -hmm. most people really have no idea what the true history is. And, for example, in the Mutual UFO Network, I've read case reports where people have uh, investigators have quoted class and not knowing that he lied. Um, they have quoted other uh, disinformants, uh, which is really unfortunate when you have an investigator who's making an assessment of a case and they are quoting uh, false information disseminated by disinformants. Okay, and, and Kathleen, um in your chapter eight, uh, you, you just mentioned uh, Helen and Vicky. <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, that that was a really interesting case, and uh, you and Stanton wrote that uh, uh, Betty uh, was never able to lead a normal life again. Her injuries were permanent and debilitating. I, I mean, this this was just. Uh, 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 like a one-time exposure. I mean, there, there's got to be something, a, a scientific explanation for such a dramatic uh, turnaround in health. And you know, you, you just mentioned uh, class and other authorities just uh, really. Did, did all they could to debunk them. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, uh, Betty, well, the women, let me give the, the audience a little, or listeners, a little bit of background information. If they're not sure, sure, sure. The book uh, goes into great detail. But uh, this was also a case that was investigated by John Schusler from the Mutual UFO Network. And I was able to get a lot of really good information from, from John who uh, was, and uh, he's a retired engineer for, I believe it was NASA. And um, these, uh, the women had gone out uh, for an evening out. Uh, Vicki Landrum had her little grandson uh, with her. They were returning home because they couldn't find things open. It was just after uh, Christmas time. And so they were returning through kind of a rural area in East Texas, uh, north of Houston, 
when they uh, saw this craft that seemed to be kind of uh, putting out molten metal in it, and that's the way it looked. And it was hovering over the road. So they had to stop the tri- the, the car. They couldn't get around uh-huh. this. And so uh, Betty Cash, who was the driver, got out of the car and stood in front of it and looked at this. Uh, Vicky's grandson was frightened, so she stayed in the car to push him down so that he wouldn't be looking at it, but she was looking at it from inside the car um, now and then also uh, as she was trying to comfort her grandson. And um, this craft was so hot that when Betty Cash went to open the door, uh, the door handle was too hot to touch. She had to uh, put material over her hand just to open the door of the car. Uh, Vicky uh, leaned forward and put her hand on the dashboard, and it left a permanent indentation in the plastic Mm -hmm. on, on the dashboard. That's how hot it was. They went home. On the way, they saw what appeared to be military helicopters escorting this uh, highly unusual craft, no wings or anything like that. And the next day, Betty Cash's face was so swollen and so burned that she ended up in the hospital. And she stayed in the hospital for a very long period of time, suffering from radiation sickness, suffering from radiation burns. She lost hair. And there was... It was so debilitating that she wasn't able to work again. Uh, Vicki, who was inside the car, had some radiation burns too, lost a little hair, but not like uh, Betty Cash, who was standing outside uh, being mm-hmm. directly exposed to that craft. And Philip Class and, and his cohorts actually accused Betty Cash of laying a template down on her arm and burning herself intentionally to attract attention. That's the kind of people we're dealing with. And one of them was a medical doctor, which is just incredible, who accused her of having Munchausen syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but this is the kind of work that they were engaged in. And so you can read all of the details uh, in fact fiction and flying saucers. That's just one example of several of the very compelling best evidence cases uh, that were investigated thoroughly by top-notch investigators. The evidence was collected and analyzed. Um, They were uh, exposed to ionizing radiation and uh, all of it was dismissed. And you mentioned that uh, Vicky and Helen were uh, accused of, or, or uh, diagnosed Daddy. with having Munchausen syndrome. Yes. And. Uh, 
you know, the, uh, you also say, uh, does he also believe that Vicky burned her own flesh and then inflicted wounds upon her grandson? You know, uh, Child Protective Services would would, would have uh, been there, but you know, they weren't prosecuted for her. Uh, Hurting and intentionally hurting their grandson or her grandson. So, what was said about them doesn't it really doesn't go anywhere else. It it's does, just. But the American public was disinformed. The American right. public believes that this never happened. That these women were attention seekers. Mm-hmm. And mentally ill, on top of it. Yeah. So, and you know, we could take that case and you know, segue into your friend Travis Walton's uh, harrowing uh, ordeal, and yeah. You know, you know, there's another. You have a photo of uh, you, uh, Stanton, and Travis. Uh, you know, you know him. Uh, it seems like you know him really well. You know, uh, the three of you uh, used to appear at all those conferences. Uh, you have uh, you present Travis in a. Uh, very likable uh, way in the uh, several pages where you cover him. Uh, uh, what's Travis like, you know, uh, behind the scenes and talking with him on the phone? Or uh, what well, Travis is has been he a believable person? Travis has been to my house, um, spent mm-hmm. five days or a week uh, with us. Uh, he was here mm-hmm. to speak. At, uh, uh, to a UFO group. I've mm-hmm. known Travis for many years. I spoke to uh, Dr. James Harder, who was the original, one of the original UFO abduction investigators who uh, investigated that case and hypnotized Travis. I've, I have all of the reports uh, on Travis's in. Uh, the investigation, uh, including Philip Class's uh, investigation of this and debunking campaign, uh, I can tell you that Travis is the salt of the earth. Uh, He's a nice gentleman. Uh, He enjoys his music. He enjoys people. Uh, He was traumatized by what occurred for many, many years, it used to hurt me to see him, to, to be able to observe the traumatic stress that he was holding in his body. And he did, in recent years, overcome that, which was a really good thing to see. But he thought for years that had been abused, that they had harmed him um, and abducted him, for he didn't know what reason. And, of course, all of the early UFO investigators, UFO abduction investigators, had kind of a negative take on all of this, too. So he came up 
having his event early on uh, with this kind of attitude being expressed by investigators. Uh, but James uh, Harder, Dr. James Harder, uh, told me fairly early on that, and my aunt Betty Hill, uh, I was at Betty's house and he was there, that uh, he didn't go into a lot of hypnosis with Travis because he thought that he had been inadvertently harmed when the beam from the craft uh, hit him. Well, what we know now is that beam that he described and and the, the crew who were in the truck and observed this happening, when that beam hit him, he was thrown back. There had to have been a malfunction uh, a, a mistake made, and instead of drawing him to the craft, he was thrown back very hard on the ground. And Travis came to realize that they didn't have to pick him up. They could have left him there seriously injured, but they didn't. They picked him up. They took him up to the craft. They did everything they could to repair the damage that was done to Travis. And yes, they kept him for five days, probably because uh, he would have spent five days in the hospital otherwise. Hmm. Um, And how could they take him to the hospital and drop him off? So they took care of him. And uh, his, I've been to the the area, to uh, the site where he was abducted, I've walked on that site. I, I know what it's like. I've, I've talked to uh, Mike Rogers, who he worked for. I've talked to uh, another one of the men, the, the youngest member of the crew, who uh, was there and witnessed this, who told me that uh, Philip Class offered him $10,000 if he'd be willing to lie and say that it was all a hoax. And uh, read that. Fact fiction in Flying Saucers, you'll find out what the truth is, what the facts are, and what Philip Class did to Travis to attempt to destroy his reputation, to impugn his character, and it was done very, very unfairly. He tried to make Travis look like a criminal and a hoaxer and a, a person who injected LSD get that, injected LSD. He thought that uh, Travis was hiding out in uh, a camp that he had just walked and walked and walked to to this camp uh, by a ranch and was hiding out in there and taking and apparently had a hypodermic needle and injected LSD. And that's why there was uh, a puncture wound uh, at the bend of his arm he didn't consider the idea that that puncture wound might have been uh, made by these human-looking uh, entities. There were a group of humans on that craft, human-looking entities, not completely human, and there were also a group of, of a variety of grays. They were sort of whitish in complexion, but had a lot of the characteristics that, that grays have. And... Uh, so that the group, the human group or the gray group, who treated him could have uh, given him a shot, could have uh, put him on fluids, 
could have done any of a number of things to treat him. Or he might have just been stabbed by the limb of a tree because he was out in the National Forest uh, with a work crew, and what they were doing is cleaning up the debris after a logging job. You know, so uh, you can get punctured quite easily doing that kind mm-hmm. of work. And and it's all in the book. But, um, you know, nasty things have been done to p- impugn the character, the credibility, the mental health of uh, these individuals. Unfortunately, I'm, that's why I'm an experiencer advocate, because I'm just sick of it. And when I realized what was actually happening and how many people were being harmed by these disinformants and how their lives were being ruined, how people like Philip Class did all they could to try to get these people fired from their jobs, to put them into a position where they would never be able to work in their field again, uh, whether they were uh, scientists, or uh, UFO abduction experiencers. And Kathleen, you do mention that uh, you had moved in with your Aunt Betty and and, uh, it'd probably be better just have you tell... I mean, yeah, that's uh, a criminal act right there uh, with, with someone in the house. I mean, you know, you're, you know, you've experienced this, you know, the efforts to uh, really cause psychological uh, damage to people. Terrible. Just go, go ahead and tell the story. Okay. Um, Well, my Uncle Barney died in February of 1969 at age 46 from a massive cerebral hemorrhage. And uh, so Betty was left alone. And when she was left alone, these uh, individuals from the intelligence community or whoever they were stepped up their plan to completely discredit Betty. And so they were, when Barney was alive, they had pulled off a few uh, things that would cause Betty and Barney to feel threatened, to be intimidated, to these weird things that were being done. And after Barney died, this ramped up, and Betty's house was being entered, she uh, one day returned home from work, and there on her living room floor was a pile of clothing that from the closet with, a, with Barney's scarf uh, laying over the top of that pile of clothing. Uh, her, she always uh, left her alarm clock set at the same time. She was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire, so she would get up at the same time every morning. So somebody set, reset the alarm clock to wake her up in the middle of the night. Somebody went in and turned the heat up uh, as high as it would go. So Betty asked 
my first husband and I to move in. We were both uh, college students at the time, about ready to graduate. And we lived in uh, an apartment she had just below her. Ours was the basement apartment. Uh, she had a home with four apartments in it. Hers was the largest. She occupied the entire first floor. And so one day I was there, and I was commuting back and forth to the University of New Hampshire, and I was uh, studying on my bed in my apartment when I thought I heard Betty enter the house. And it was unusual for her to come home at noontime, but I thought, oh, gee, maybe she's come home and to have lunch or pick something up. So I went up the stairs to greet her because we had a very close relationship. And uh, so I, uh, and I, and I did have an intercom between her apartment and mine so we could overhear what was going on. And so I went up the stairs. We always left the door unlocked between our two apartments. The others were deadbolt locked. And uh, looked for Betty, called for her, couldn't find her. So I went back downstairs, and all of a sudden I heard a loud crashing sound. And I went running up the stairs. I thought, oh, my gosh, what has happened? And there was a closet door that was wide open, a baseball bat on the floor in front of that. It was Betty's bat and glove that she had in her closet. Um, the front door was open, and I went dashing. I was, uh, you know, young and pretty speedy at that time. I went dashing down the hallway, out the front door, and there was a man dressed in a brown suit running away from Betty's house and getting into a car and speeding off. I mean, that was not a common burglar. That was uh, an intelligence agent who was had a job to do. That's my interpretation of it. And uh, he was, was just pulling off these tricks, I think, to try to push Betty over the edge. Here she had just lost her husband. The, the major support in her life after the two of them had been abducted together and the, this program was ramped up. And Betty, I have to tell you, like Stanton, was extremely intelligent and a very strong, well-grounded individual. If she wasn't, I'm, I'm sure she would have gone over the edge. But instead of doing that, she didn't tell people in the UFO community. She didn't make it public. She told the police. And she ended up getting one of the early uh, alarm security systems uh, to, and had that installed in her home and wired into the police department. It happened again, uh, but it was the last time that it happened after the alarm sounded. But her phone was tapped. We know that. There were other people who testified that they were aware that her phone was tapped. So she was under surveillance, and she was uh, attempting to be discredited uh, over and over and over again. That's what she had to live with. And she and Barney had never even gone public with their story. They had intended for it to remain confidential. They reported it to the Air Force, Project Blue Book. 
they reported it to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, but it was uh, a violation of confidentiality, carried their story to the public when a newspaper reporter from the Boston Traveler uh, got wind of it uh, and uh, interviewed officers at at Pease Air Force Base, uh, also interviewed uh, a dozen witnesses to the UFO that night that Betty and Barney had their event, uh, and um, interviewed uh, people who knew Betty, who didn't realize that she had not given her permission, and so they just spilled the beans to this newspaper reporter, and, and he... Uh, had articles that ran for five days in a row in uh, late October of uh, 1965. So that's that's what caused that story to go public. And, you know, then Betty and Barney had to suffer. And they suffered terribly. Their major interest was in uh, improving the lives of the citizens of New Hampshire. Uh, they had been on the board that set up the Rockingham County Community Action Program with the poverty programs from the federal government. Barney had been awarded an award by Sergeant Shriver and the governor of New wow. Hampshire and the man from the Office of Economic Opportunity. Barney had been appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission State Advisory Committee. That was another very prominent position that he held in the state of New Hampshire. And uh, he and Betty certainly would never go with their story, with the very important positions they held, and with their interest in uh, forwarding the civil rights movement and forwarding human rights as well. That was their focus. That's what they were doing in their lives. They were not uh, people who were at all interested in UFOs, Uh, even though my mother had had a close-up sighting back in 1957, 58, something like that. Um, But Barney was a disbeliever. He was not willing to believe that... uh, before he actually saw the craft with the non-humans on it and had conscious recall for it, he he didn't even believe that it was possible. Betty thought it might be possible, but she wasn't certain. But after they had that event, as I said, they were committed to uh, talking to UFO investigators, to Air Force officers and Naval officers as well, uh, to scientists. But they entered the family and close friends and members of their church group. But they definitely uh, did not want this story to be carried to the public on a on a uh, widespread scale. But it was. Oh, I I I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go go ahead and finish. No, I I just said, but it was. So go ahead. That a very short sentence. Oh, uh, okay. It, 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 uh, it, just to let the audience know that y- you have a uh, revised, expanded uh, edition of 
uh, captured that will be out next spring. Is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, since I wrote Captured and, and Stanton wrote part of the book, too, uh, I have been attempting to have other materials scientifically analyzed in scientific laboratories, uh, and uh, there has been a lot of additional information that has come forward. And all of that information is going to be revealed in uh, this new updated uh, version of Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, the second edition. You can get the first edition uh, from me or from Barnes & Noble or Amazon now. Um, my website is Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N.com, and uh, all of my books, autographed copies, are for sale on my website. So uh, you have a lot of different options. If you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, there is, are audiobooks, e-books, uh, hardcover, softcover, you name it. Uh, all of my books are in various formats. Okay. Well, uh, you are welcome to return to cover the expanded edition of Captured. Uh, love to have you come back. Okay, but I can only tell a little bit of what the, the new scientific evidence is. I'm not going okay. to spill the beans oh, on right. all of it. <laughs> yeah, but thank yeah, you for I, inviting I, I, me. I would yeah, love to come. I, I, I'm just... I'm just saying. Uh, just saying, you already have an invitation. Just you know, we'll, we'll put you down sometime in April. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. I I I just really enjoyed uh, what uh, you know, I've been talking for about uh, ninety minutes, and and it seems like about fifteen, only fifteen <laughs> minutes. I just step back and let you. Uh, Tell these stories. I, you know, yeah, you know, your books are terrific, and yeah, you know, the, the teamwork that you and Stanton um, put into these books and expressing your uh, experiences of um, just. The the attacks, um, you know, what you were just talking about with uh, people being in the house, uh, they weren't invited. You know, they got into the house and are doing. It, it, it's a really visceral uh, type story. It's you know. Uh, Immoral, illegal. It's really a a captivating book. It's very well done. Thank you so much. And and I think it's very readable, too, because what we always attempt to do in our books is just to tell a good story with the facts and with the footnotes and with the references uh, so that you know where we got those facts from. Mm-hmm. And, and so, 
with all these examples that we've covered over the last you know, uh, 90 minutes, um, why is there such a need to discredit people involved in the UFO movement? Well, there, I have found there's a difference between UFOs and contact with extraterrestrial beings. Um, okay. We have soft disclosure um, coming forward now. Uh, the Department of Defense has admitted that the uh, the Tic Tac video and the videos off the East Coast as well uh, were, t- were official Navy radar video. Um, so they've admitted that. Uh, so we're having some soft disclosure that's taking place, but no disclosure regarding contact, um, direct contact between non-humans and humans. And I've talked to military officers, actually, uh, uh, and even some people in the intelligence community about this. And and my speculation was that uh, humans uh, are being taken sometimes uh, against their will. And uh, they're undergoing these medical procedures, examinations, and our military, no military on the entire planet is capable of preventing this from happening. And that poses a huge threat mm-hmm. because you know, their job is to... Uh, is the orderly functioning of the body politic uh, to maintain order among the the population. You don't want hysteria. And you might have a lot more frightened people if uh, the the facts about alien abduction uh, are brought forth by credible individuals. And I think that that is uh, one of the big problems that those of us in this field have experienced, I've been threatened to, but also I've had military officers and intelligence agents tell me that I'm correct in that assumption that I just voiced, that, that that's what it is, um, that mm. they cannot protect us. So uh, a UFO is fine, it's good to look at, uh, it's good to study, maybe we can uh, develop that kind of technology or, or you know, learn their scientific secrets, but when it comes to what occupies the craft, what flies that craft, uh, they want nothing to do with that. Okay, and I'm Maybe we can stop with the review of fact fiction and flying saucers there, and just spend a little bit of time uh, covering your uh, co-authored book, uh, The Alien Abduction Files, with um, Denise Stoner, and... Since, since you also have a uh, background in 
social work. How did you know you and Denise you know start talking? Uh, you know she, she's telling you about her uh, story. You know, when, when someone is telling you about her, uh, her um, you know, fantastic uh, tale. Uh, how do you, you know, what do you do? Uh, you, you know, just listen. Uh, you know, how, how do you ask uh, questions to have have the uh, speaker give you more information? And you know, we can get get into uh, uh, Denise's story as well. Okay, sure. Well, let me say first that uh, my husband and I had left New Hampshire. We were growing older and tired of the cold weather, and we moved to Florida mm-hmm. where Denise lived. And uh, I decided to become involved in Florida, MUFON, and I already had uh, a reputation, uh, so I, I, was, I was very well known. So... Uh, Denise was a state section director in the Mutual UFO Network. She was a the chief investigator. Uh, she was a member of the STAR team, which is the elite team of investigators for MUFON. And she was uh, holding a meeting, and I decided just to go to the meeting. And uh, she recognized me. And uh, she didn't want to introduce me because she didn't know if I wanted to be recognized or not. But we talked a little bit, and uh, then she invited me to her home for lunch one day, and so I decided to go, and over lunch, she said, I'm an experiencer. I've been abducted from, uh, I had a major abduction back in uh, 1981, 82, and uh, so I was very interested in hearing her story and what she remembered about it. So what I do when I interview people is I generally uh, let them talk. And Mm -hmm. what I'm looking for is consistency in what they say, uh, how much information they have, were there witnesses. Denise had witnesses uh, as well. And and so that was very important. Uh, Is there missing time? I want to know. And, of course, Denise was an investigator, a highly ranked investigator. So she she knew everything that I was looking for anyway. So this one was quite easy that, um, you know, they were going to their summer camp, uh, living in Colorado near Denver at the time, uh, left the same time every Friday night. They'd drive down to Buena Vista and uh, meet Denise's parents and family friends, and Denise's mother would have dinner for them. They worked like clockwork because they knew they had to be there before 8 o'clock for dinner. So on that particular night, uh, they're driving along. They're coming off from uh, a 12,000 foot pass, Kenosha Pass, 
And as they're driving down to the valley floor, they see uh, two new lights in the sky that are uh, weaving around erratically and approaching them. And so they're watching these lights. And finally, they, they've dr- driven down to the valley floor, and these lights come straight at their vehicle. And Denise had conscious memory of feeling as if the car was sliding off the side of the road. And her husband was driving, and she said she remembered that she was speaking to him. Do you see that? Look at that. What is that? But he was had both hands on the steering wheel, and he was staring straight ahead. Well, I thought, oh, gee, well, maybe there's a prosaic explanation for this. Maybe they did go off the road. Maybe uh, they were knocked unconscious or lost consciousness, and, and that could explain what occurred. And so, you know, after she finished talking, uh, I, or sometimes even during the conversation, if I could interject a question, I would say, give the question, um, do you think that you might have just gone off the side of the road and, and you were unconscious and, and that's what happened? And she'd say, no, that isn't what happened. Because our next memory was of being 40 miles south of our previous location. And instead of being daylight, like it was when they saw these crafts coming toward the car, it was now dark. Their car was stopped. It was at the top of Trout Creek Pass. And it was, uh, by the time they arrived at their camp, it was 11 o'clock at night. They were supposed to be there at 8 o'clock. They had no prosaic explanation for what had happened to them. So I had Denise's testimony of what she remembered and um, recorded notes taken um, and had a really good idea of what happened. Uh, she didn't remember the date. Um, she knew what they were driving uh, and that sort of thing. But then I separately interviewed Denise's husband, and I interviewed Denise's mother. So her mother actually gave me a sworn statement that Denise and Ed had uh, arrived that late, that they were so worried that they had had an accident or their car had broken down that they were going to go to the ranch house and uh, which was the office and asked to use the phone to call the highway patrol to uh, report the uh, their absence when Ed and Denise showed up and they told them about the UFOs that they saw and the, how they had missed the, you know, these 40 miles that should have registered on the odometer, but didn't, and all of wow. these other things. And Denise's parents just laughed. They thought that Ed and Denise were kidding. They were pulling their leg, that they had just decided to go later. But that was not what had happened. Uh, so then 
after I had the entire story, everything that they remembered consciously, I wanted to know if they'd made a report. No, they had not made a report. Um, Denise had gone for hypnosis uh, when she lived in Denver, but she had forgotten everything that she had said under hypnosis when she went back to uh, try to get the transcripts the hypnotist was deceased and all of his files had been disposed of so there was no help there so i decided that i would hypnotize ed and denise separately and reinstate amnesia so they just like dr benjamin simon did with my aunt and uncle betty and barney hill and the reason for that was so that they couldn't Uh, contaminate one another's information. I wanted separate witnesses who were giving me detailed, hopefully, information uh, so that I could check the story out. I always looked for any hole, any uh, prosaic explanation, ordinary explanation, um, maybe Mm -hmm. a mistake. I knew it wasn't a hoax. And, And so that's what I did. And I did hypnotize them separately and was able to acquire a lot more information, even the date and the day of the week that this happened and the year. And so then I went on to uh, my computer and I looked through uh, the files dating back to that date the archives, and discovered that, yes, it did happen on Friday the 13th of August, uh, just as Denise recalled under hypnosis. So there was one little fact. And, And then I kept looking for other facts, comparing it to what I knew about other abductions and piecing it together a little bit at a time, um, checking out Denise's credibility, checking to see if she was fantasy prone, Um, just uh, looking for prosaic explanations all along and accepting and writing about uh, what I could not refute. And I wrote a little bit about what I questioned as well because she uh, went back later, much, much later after this investigation, and uh, she I hadn't known this previously, but she thought that she had been abducted from the time she was two and a half years old. And she had this clear memory of uh, looking out the window of her home. Her grandparents and her parents all lived together in the home. Her mother was in the hospital giving birth to her younger sister. Her father was out that night. She was alone with the grandfather. She's looking out the window, and she thinks she sees Humpty Dumpty in the sky. So she calls her grandfather. It wasn't Humpty Dumpty. It was a a big um, oval light, uh, fairly close up. The grandfather looked out, and he said, no, that's not Humpty Dumpty, and and he closed the curtains. And Denise believed that she was taken that night when she was two and a half years old. Well, I've studied child development child psychology. Um, I have a background, a a good, strong background in the social sciences. And I know for a fact that two-and-a-half-year-old children are fantasy-prone and that 
Perhaps this didn't really happen. I question that. Maybe it did, um, because my research shows that uh, about 37% of experiencers believe that they were taken when they were less than five years old for the first time. So uh, there's the possibility that it's real. But I know that I have to be skeptical about um, you know, stories, detailed stories that come from people uh, dating back to their early childhood years. There, there are many other plausible explanations. But there was no other plausible explanation for this very major event that Denise and Ed had uh, and, and another event, too, that I wrote about in the book um, that they both had uh, when they were returning home uh, after a weekend of skin diving. It was Sunday morning. They, they went diving. They were cave divers uh, and went diving on Saturday and spent the night at a motel and their, uh, Denise's mother was babysitting their daughter, and so they had to leave in the morning to, to go home and collect their daughter. And you know, some people had said, oh, they probably had, you know, they were skin diving, they uh, breathed in nitrogen. And uh, so, you know, it, trying to dismiss it. It doesn't last in their system uh, 16, 18 hours. They uh, they had another event. It was about a two-hour event when they were on one road and then they found themselves uh, in a completely different location on another road and time had passed. And uh, you can read about all of that in the alien abduction files as well as five other cases that I've personally investigated that I thought were compelling uh, evidence cases. And uh, I did the hypnosis uh, sessions with some of those individuals as well. Yeah, uh, Kathleen, your, you know, your case studies are you know, uh, fascinating. Uh, you, know, you get a few uh sample diagrams the uh one of Jenny's sketch with the uh fetuses in the tanks <laughs> that, that's uh just you know, uh something it seems like it's something right out of, of the x files uh but you know that's seems uh, like some kind of dreamlike fantasy uh, type scenario. I, it's you know just, just it, it has well, some it, really it, creepy it, it, images to it. Yes, and you know it could it could be it. Uh... I'm not saying that I'm, I'm 100% convinced that that is what she observed on this craft. Um, but other people have reported the same thing. I have, right. You have to remember, though, 
that Bud Hopkins wrote about this. David Jacobs wrote about this as well. So, you know, maybe the memory has been contaminated by that knowledge that they had acquired. Maybe it wasn't. They read or observed. But I can't prove one way or the other if that part of it is true. I do know that uh, there is evidence that I have observed, um, you know, such as uh, uh, electromagnetic anomalies uh, in the home. Other things, uh, Betty's uh, son, uh, I mean Jenny's son, is an adult now. He is still having uh, episodes as well, and so... Mm. You know, there are some things as an investigator and researcher that I can find evidence for. There are other things that I can't. Um, but I also, something that we look for is we have knowledge that the general public doesn't have knowledge of. Things from uh, descriptions of certain procedures, detailed procedures on craft, marks, um, patterned marks on experiencers' bodies that have not been published. We try to keep that secret. I have an entire catalog of these patterned marks that are just showing up on experiencers' bodies around the world. It doesn't matter if you're in Brazil or France or uh, Mm -hmm. Quebec, Canada, or Kentucky. People are uh, having these same marks put on their bodies. Um, wow. And, okay. and so, so uh, I have to use the secret information that I have as well. Okay. So uh, uh, that, that's just some more proof. How, you know, how, how do people who don't know each other uh, living thousands of miles apart have uh, yeah, the same uh, marks on them? Uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm not talking about a simple little scoop mark that Bud Hopkins right. used to talk about. These are patterned, detailed marks. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, it's a uh, these pat. Uh, you know, as Barbara and I do our shows, and uh, you know, guests come on and you know, talk about you know whatever they're researching. The importance of patterns just keeps re- reappearing as something that really needs to be uh, given uh, a lot more credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, that's thing. Yeah, and uh, Kathleen, we're down to uh, about the last uh, four minutes or three, three, four minutes of the show. Uh, um. Is there anything you want to uh, hopefully, you know, there'll be some uh, appearances coming up. Uh, ho- hopefully this virus situation is going to end uh, soon. But yeah, do you have any uh, appearances coming up? Or, you know, do you want to just plug your web- website again? Uh Yes, well, actually, there's going to be a free online conference. Um, You can do an Internet search for Portal to Ascension, 
And this is taking place, I think it's out in California, but it's entirely online and it's absolutely free. So um, I can actually post that link on my website tomorrow. And uh, also I'll put it on my Facebook page um, for people who are my Facebook friends. Uh, so if you, if you're, anyone's interested in that, I have uh, an interview on that on Sunday at, uh, let's see, so, um, Sunday, October 4th, and it's going to be from 6.20 to 7 o'clock Eastern Time, and then I'm going to uh, be on a panel discussion uh, after that on UFOs. So that's something that's coming up very soon. All of our uh, in-person appearances have been canceled due to the virus, of course. Mm. Uh, hoping it, hoping that uh, we're going to be able to do some of that next year. But uh, I have a lot of articles on my website that you can go to to uh, read. They're all free. So, again, my website is Kathleen, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N, dash or hyphen, Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, dot com. And, again, uh, my five books and one of Stanton Friedman's books that he wrote without me are all being offered for sale, autographed copies uh, by Stanton as well, on my website. So I'd be happy to... uh, send out any orders that I receive, go down to the post office and mail them to you right away. And uh, so on my website, too, if you want to check from time to time, I update my blog, and uh, I will be posting uh, the lectures and and appearances that I will be making uh, when I know for certain what's going on into 2021. Okay. Well, uh, save a date in April 2021 for, for you to return to cover the uh, expanded captured book. And, okay. Uh, uh, this, uh, th- th- thank you so much, Kathleen. You know, we're down to the last couple seconds. And you know, I, th- this was a lot of fun. It, it was great talking with you again. And um, I, I, I just hope uh, we can get you back on to uh, re- review more of your fascinating books. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that all of your listeners did as well. Yeah, I hope so. So th- thank you again. Thanks, Barbara, for producing. And I'll, I'll see everyone next Tuesday with uh kicking off our Halloween month. So thanks again everyone. Have a great night and thank you again Kathleen. <laughs>